welcome down to Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. The people are all happy and content, just as I've ordered them to be. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today, we are wrapping up our trek through the infinite battlefield of Acheron. Today, we're going to be going through each of the four layers of Acheron, talking a little bit about what each layer is comprised of, who you're going to find here, what you're going to find here, locations, factions, that sort of thing. Now, I will say this week, because I did not mention it last week, and I was being very patient not to mention it last week, but Acheron now, this is our fifth river of the Greek mythology, the, the undead, the underworld. So we have finally achieved all of the rivers of the undead. They have now all made one appearance of some sort or another throughout the plains. So a little late to the party, but here we are. So you're trying to remember some of them are actually full plains like Acheron and some of them were just bodies of water. Yeah. Layers within because I I remember that there was at least one in Pandemonium. Yeah. There's Acheron. There's obviously Styx. There's Stygia, Leith. And I'm going to blank on the fifth one because I always forget one of them. Acheron, Leith, Styx. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, anyway, all five are here, damn it. So, bleh. And I will remember probably about 40 minutes of the podcast and be like, that's what it was. And I will absolutely do that. So let's start the timer now. <laughs> All right. So starting off, the first layer of Acheron is called Avalis. Avalis is the infinite battlefield. Nearly all of the conflict between armies happens on Avalis. It is confined to this first layer. This is the layer with all of the iron cubes that are floating around, smashing into each other. It is a layer of constant din because you hear the crashing of metal and whether it is the crashing of cubes in the distance smashing into each other or from the armies that are just over that next ridge. It's a toss up 50-50, but you're going to always hear that clashing clanging noise everywhere you are here right if you really want to get a good feel for your players to hear go ahead put on the battle of minister from lord of the rings minister yes saving private ryan all at the same time and then take all of your cookware and just throw it in the floor and that's pretty much what it's going to sound like wait for the city road crew to start jackhammering outside of your house at 5 a.m <laughs> that is what this plane is going to sound like it's not a quiet place it is not a quiet place so as we mentioned last week the devils from Bator do come here to recruit battalions to fight for them in the blood war and because this is where all of the armies muster and fight Avalis is the most densely populated layer of Akron that said it is still pretty empty there's not a whole lot of individual souls here and there's not a lot of planar entities coming in from other planes to join in the fighting the ones that are coming in are very deliberate in their reason for coming here akron is not a plane that you just stumble into you know just wandering about wondering where you're going to be going right this isn't one of those willy-nilly things and even if you're a petitioner as we said the petitioners are the souls of the dead from the mortal realms we've touched on that a handful of times very specifically you almost have to be a goblinoid and orc to be here or otherwise someone who specifically fought for the sake of fighting again mercenaries general rebels things like that it's a very very select sliver that gets you here that said when you think classically 
exactly what you always grew up D&D being, you know, always fighting those huge swath of armies of either orcs or goblins or anything like that. This really is the perfect place for that kind of setup. There is one permanent gate in the city of Rigus in the Outlands that links to Acheron. The other end is here in Avalis. And it is interesting in that the destination on the Acheron side changes depending on conditions on the Rigus side. The destination varies based on the number of deaths during the previous week in Rigus. Okay. It doesn't specify what that count is and which one of these three locations it'll actually spit you out at under which circumstances. But it does mention that the Akron side changes depending on how many people die on the Outland side. That's kind of snazzy. And the three possible locations are the Battle Cube, which is where Grumsh and Maglubiet's petitioners are fighting. The Blue Cube, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit, or the Mercy Killers city of Vorkahan. So the major hub for the Mercy Killers faction here in Acheron. It's going to be one of those three locations. That's a hard um, coin flip. <laughs> and apparently this sometimes leads to rashes of murders within Rigus as if someone is attempting to manipulate the destination of the gate. Oh, I'm sure they would be. And again, even that in itself really rings to the whole factionality faction is, I don't know the word I'm looking for here. Anyway, words, I have them. Let me try to restart that. Rewind. Yeah. Cositas. Ha! Cocytus, <laughs> yes. Wait, hold on. Where's my time? It only took you four minutes. And getting completely stuck on something else. That is how my brain works. Okay. So Cositas, Cositas, however you want to pronounce that. That one. And this kind of timer or this whole manipulation of trying to influence where this portal is going to be really rings to the whole way the factions strive and constantly struggle for power in Acheron, even amongst what would be, quote, a friendly camp, or even as long as you're on the same goal as your surroundings, there's still that constant faction. So you're fighting within fights. There's war within wars and wheels within wheels and plots within plots, to quote some Dune. Yes, there is. There was a point to this whole statement, besides Cositas. <laughs> <laughs> you're talking about the plausibility of there being individuals trying to manipulate where the gate goes. Yes, exactly. But yes, that is a good point, because... Everyone in Akron is fighting to get the upper hand over their enemy, but getting the upper hand on their allies too, because it is all about, this is the epitome of evil as selfishness, because we've talked about that a couple of times before, that evil as depicted in D&D alignment correlates strongly to selfishness. Yes. And in this place where you have a whole plane that is conflict for the sake of conflict, that selfishness tends to take a backseat, but that's going to be your motivation generally. If you need a reason other than just to stir the pot, you're going to stir the pot. And while it's stirring, you may as well get to step up on somebody too. Okay. But the first location we're going to talk about here in Avalis is the Blue Cube. <laughs> Not the Blue Man Group? No. I should take my tickets back then? Yes. I don't know. Maybe. I still might want to take it to this place. It's kind of cool. <laughs> so the blue cube is a cube that happens to be blue. Imagine that. Imagine that. So it has this bluish hue to it. I'm thinking it's probably sort of like there's a treatment that you can do for steel called oil bluing. So hot bluing or cold bluing, where you're basically impregnating the surface with oil to help prevent it from rusting. 
And so I'm picturing it as having sort of that sort of sheen to it. Not quite gunmetal. It's not quite black. Okay. But the little bit lighter end of that. While you make a great case for that and it would fit perfectly, I pictured this as a full-on electron blue. You're seeing this as like a cobalt blue. No, but I mean, there's actually a color called electron blue. Oh, yeah. Uh, Honda has it for some of their vehicles and it's gorgeous. Even brighter than cobalt blue. Yeah, and in my head, it's that electron blue and it's iridescent almost. We'll get to why. That does make sense because it is surrounded by this halo of flickering light. Right. And the common lore is that anyone who comes to the blue cube dies instantly being consumed by lightning spirits. That is something that could happen. I mean, lightning spirits tend to be a little feisty. Just a wee bit. That Um, too. We've also said that there are several factions that their location is largely unknown. This might be one of those spots possibly. It could be. But it is also rumored that there is a conduit to the quasi-elemental plane of lightning contained in the hollow within the cube. And the cube itself has a single inhabitant. That we know of. That we know of. An ancient blue worm named Teslor. Apparently, Teslor used to be a resident of the god Lee Kung's realm, Resounding Thunder, and he got a little bit too big for his britches, and so Lee Kung banished him here. Which, I mean, for a deity on any plane to just, like, nope out a great worm is damned impressive. And some of the other things that happened to this great worm Teslor as well, I'm going to go ahead and, and give Lee Kung a bit of the tip of a hat because damn he is a greater god in the pantheon but this is quite impressive so as part of his banishment the membranes of his wings were ripped and tattered so he can't fly away and he also suffers total amnesia at the end of each day so he started to inscribe the details of all of his escape attempts his history and his enemies onto the surface of the cube which he reads every day to remind himself who he is. Yeah, remember that movie Memento? <laughs> uh, I was going to say 50 First Dates, but... Okay, yeah, that too. It, same, same premise. Absolutely. Memento probably had a little closer feel than the 50 First Date was yeah. kind of campy and sweet. Memento was a shade or two darker. Just a wee bit, yeah. <laughs> so Teslor has been surviving on a diet of provender stones, which has resulted in him becoming grossly malnourished and more than a little crazy. As will happen. And... uh also, due to the nature of Acheron, where every action has an opposite reaction, whenever he draws in power to discharge his lightning breath, the cube that he's on takes an opposite charge, which is what creates this nimbus of light. Okay. Um, so it is literally the latent electrical charge in the cube that is making it glow. So this thing's going to look like a giant quasar just kind of flashing out the nether. Again, this place does sound kind of cool, except for the whoever visits this place obviously dies because the lightning spirits <laughs> or possibly, again, there's some fairly beefy factions we mentioned last week, like the Blades Army. And there was another group too that they were looking for that nobody can find for whatever reason and this would be a great place to hide something like that with its own lore um again dm call on your end but totally writable i would hate to be on the cube that this cube collides with oh yeah because (laughs) you're losing because (laughs) no just a giant charged cube yeah slams into your cube what's it going to do It's going to transfer all that electricity into this uncharged cube. Right. And if you're going to get cooked. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. And then I was going to say, if you really want to get geeky with this, technically, as it's holding one charge and then it's switching that charge as this dragon's pulling in energy for its lightning breath and then discharging again, this is good old-fashioned alternating current as well. Oh, yes. It's going to grab you. It's going to grab you hard. Alternating current is what Tesla came up with and Edison when he was trying to dissuade people from using alternating current. He was trying to prove how dangerous it was and did pleasant little things like put on shows where he electrocuted elephants and had it signed up for the electric chair and stuff like that. Because again, you are going to carry a much higher voltage for your amperage as well. And again, depending on how geeky you want to get, that can get pretty nasty. Again, this plane tickles all of my science geekdom from college. It was beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even just a close call with this thing is probably going to be enough to fry you because if it gets close enough, it's just going to arc across. Oh yeah, just an arc that goes and like burns out the first five ranks of whatever formation and who <laughs> 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 buddy that's gonna be that's gonna be rough yeah so the actual mechanic is when you land on the cube or whenever it's about to collide with another cube the surface discharges dealing 2d6 lightning damage to the creature okay so it's not as substantial as the rumor makes it out to be the rumor does aggrandize it a bit it's still going to grab you and it's not going to feel good because it still deals half damage on a save. So you're going to get zapped whenever you come in. One way or the other, but it's not a save or die type thing, which there was plenty of. Oh, in there's so edition. much save or die. <laughs> We're out of save. I got all we have is die left. What about cake? <laughs> you know, it's cake, right? What do you mean? <laughs> or die. <laughs> so Tesla's breath weapons are also considerably more powerful here because of this electrical charge is operating almost like a battery yeah it doesn't specify in the books at least not that i could find how his breath weapons are more powerful my first thought was make his breath weapon deal max damage which could be something to do but that would make it very lethal because you're talking you know with an ancient worm this is like a 24 d8 lightning breath and this makes sense too because again you have the divine power for a thunder domain cleric is to maximize his thunder damage spells so i mean transfer from addition to addition that's perfectly fair and again this is not supposed to be hey you're showing up on this thing and you could survive and write a story no you show up here you're dead (laughs) yeah another thought that i had was maybe it recharges more frequently so instead of a recharge on five to six it recharges on a three to six okay so you're not maximizing the damage you're greatly increasing the number of times he's able to use it i can see that but the idea that i settled on that i like the best is taking some inspiration from the sorcerer's empowered spell meta magic so whenever he rolls damage you get to re-roll all ones and twos I like that one too. I think with these three options, you could pick and depending on the level of your party or how pissed off they've made you because they're talking and they won't actually focus on the game. You can pick which one you want to work with. All three of these would be perfectly viable options with a ton of lore and previous mechanics to back up your decision. You could just have the subset one, two, and three and go with either of the three because they all work. I can't do this as retribution for my party not listening because I have a party full of neuroatypical people. Just about everybody at my table (laughs) is either ADD or ADHD, so that's completely off the table for me. Fair point. You can't blame me for this one. (laughs) Nope, not this one. All right, so that pretty much sums up the blue cube. 
because there's not anything really about the cube. It's all about Teslor. Everything I can find on it. Teslor's pretty badass. And again, a definite tip of the hat to Lei Kung for being able to pull that off. Because again, in lore within the realm, he is not someone you really want knocking on the door with his army. Which also probably why so many people feel that they can get away with fleeing to his realm. In a realm of constant combat, it's a realm of cowards and deserters and things like that. So it's got to be a safe place, right? Safe-ish? Safer. Yeah. All right. So next up is the first of the two Battle Cube realms, Klanger. Klanger is the realm of Maglubiet. His lieutenants Kurgorbayeg and Nomageya are also here, the gods of goblins and hobgoblins respectively. The entire cube is home to the barracks for goblinoid nations drilling and planning assaults on the orcs. This is an interesting dynamic because the goblins that are here are not the mindless chaotic hordes that you associate with goblins in most games that take place on the material plane. It's odd because these are goblins that have tactics and strategy and organization and order. They're not the rabbles that you run into in so many modules and in lore on the material plane. Well, I mean, if you're fighting all day, every day for eternity, you can't help but to learn some tactics eventually. <laughs> yeah, but the fact that they are as disciplined as they are. As they are. But again, too, I think that lends to the overall feel of the lawfulness of the plane versus, I mean, the material plane is as close to true neutral, really, as a plane could be because it's got a little bit of everything. And this is so squarely lawful. I think that's probably a large influence of that. It probably so the surface of the cube is bristling with towers and walls designed to funnel invading forces through choke points for greatest inch. So it feels a lot more to me like World of Warcraft goblins because yeah. these are the engineer sort of goblins. Okay. So the gnome counterpart almost. I could see that. Or just goblins with a good flavoring of kobold just uh, kind of round them out. A little bit, yeah. Well, again, you have the caverns and the tunnels, and I'm sure there's going to be a ton of traps throughout this whole thing as well. Uh, probably. So the interior of the cubes are hollowed out into these square tunnels and chambers. The big tunnels are large enough for humans or orcs or hobgoblins to pass through easily. It does specifically mention that even the Beriar, who are the ram centaurs that we talked about way back in uh, Isgard, they can walk through these tunnels without any issue. Okay. And then there's these small tunnels that sort of shoot off the sides of them that are barely large enough for a goblin to pass through single file. So this is basically what they're going to be doing is if the orcs manage to get that far, they're going to draw them into these tunnels and then they're going to shoot off onto their little side channels where the orcs can't physically follow them. And they're going to follow our Tucker's Kobolds strategies of peeking out, picking off a few ducking back in the skirmish tactics yeah constantly harassing the flanks and yeah no that makes a lot of sense again this would be a fun map to draw up and run there'd be a lot you can do with this kind of back and forth you would definitely want a very hardy party to go through this you wouldn't want something terribly squishy or someone that's going to get easily discouraged because this would be a tough tough battle to get through so to reinforce the lawfulness of the plane the town's within this realm are ruled by rigid hierarchy. They're orderly and safe, but they're not comfortable. It's a very militant 
Spartan sort of feel. There's nothing for comfort. It is all just the bare necessities because the plane doesn't provide a whole lot that can be used for comfort. Gotcha. So like your room's going to be a plank or a shingle of some sort, maybe a drawer to keep an effect or two, and that'd be about it. (laughs) You're going to be given a flat spot to lay down and a blanket to throw over you. And that's about it. And it's probably like one of those thin, nasty ones where it's just enough to keep. It's one of those ones that you get on the airplane. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's not quite big enough to cover you. But it does the job somehow, just not well. Yes. Yes. It is the okayest blanket ever. We have opinions. Apparently. Um, (laughs) So the primary town for the goblins is called Shetring. It's where Kerborg... I'll get that right. I've gotten it right so far. Uh, Kergorbayeg lives. There's a short river that pops up, runs a couple miles, and then drops back down into the interior of the cube that this town is built over. And it is said that Maglubiat resides at the bottom of the waterfall where it drops back down. So sacrifices are regularly thrown down the waterfall to him think Road to El Dorado. Yeah. So the capital for the Hobgoblins and where Nomagea is, is a smaller but better defended location called Red Spike. It's built around this rust red granite mesa that resembles a giant tower that just sort of grows up out of the surface, which it can because this is a divine realm. Okay. No, I can see that. The mesa itself has been tunneled out and it has all of these little buildings sort of glommed onto the outside of it all the way up. And there's these two spiraling ramps that go up around the outside of it all the way to the top that allow for you to reach the different levels where they've hollowed out the inside of it. So they've got structure on the inside. They've got buildings on the perimeter. There's probably something up on the very top of this mesa as well. Wasn't anything specified. But it is also rumored that there is a prison underneath Red Spike where they keep thousands of goblins who failed in their duties. Now, see, I think this is absolute rumor because we've discussed before keeping a goblin like that would reduce the number of souls on your plane. So and there really is only one punishment for crime, as we discussed. But there's (laughs) but there's a reason for it. Okay, the reason they aren't killed outright is to keep another orc from being brought in due to the law of conservation of souls. Yeah, that that is specifically why they're doing it. Okay, that makes sense. That is the specific reason for it. No, I can see that. Okay, you're not worth killing. It costs you more to kill you outright. So we can just make you live in here and be miserable until you're ready to fight again proper. Yeah, yep. no, I, that's a great call. I did want to throw in too, you did miss a description in here because again, you're undoubtedly going to get a player who's going to go, well, if this is just an iron cube, how is there rivers and waters? It is said that the climate on this cube is very cold and very chill where your breath always fogs out and there's i'm sure more than plenty enough bloodshed that you just say the body fluids either from your breath or the spilled blood gets absorbed in the cube and becomes a river of sorts and there is your answer besides DD magic shut up and throwing dice at people which is also fun <laughs> well i mean if you wanted to logic it away yes but if you wanted to give the actual canon reason it's because this is a divine realm There are gods living here. The plane is divinely morphic, so the gods can make the plane whatever they want. That's D&D magic, and you throw dice at the people. (laughs) (laughs) That is the 
short answer is that this is a divinely morphic realm that the gods are controlling to do what they want it to do. And you have to throw the dice. That is part of it. Yeah. <laughs> That's part of the... Uh, divine power. Uh, TTRP exorcism. Yeah. <laughs> the power of dice compel you. That is the punishment for heresy is a 1d4 to the forehead. <laughs> All right. And then the third and final town within Klangor is Grashmog, the heart of battle. This is where the priests of Maglubiet and his elite cavalry force, the Steel Biters, reside with their winter wolf mounts. Kind of a cool name for a unit. Just going to throw that out there. Yeah. As I mentioned, all of these towns are governed by very strict laws regulating every aspect of life, including what colors and garments different ranks are allowed to wear. So they have sumptuary laws. There you go. So visitors are forbidden to wear red, black, or white, and only officers in the goblin armies may wear cloaks. And so if you are in violation of that, well, then bad things are going to happen to you. So I kind of like this a lot, the fact that you have these set uniforms, for lack of a better word. So if your party's here and they're trying to, you know, do a disguise check or a performance, if they can be intelligent enough, maybe roll an investigation check, have some sort of lore behind them to know what's supposed to happen, they could probably, hey, I'm going to dress this way for an advantage on my role. Now, there will be a punishment, obviously, if they are caught outside of that. So that could also be something they could pull off. And I would almost give them disadvantage if they are not appropriately dressed, garbed. I don't know how you want to phrase that. Because if they are trying to pass themselves off as an officer and they're not wearing a cloak, that's going to be a pretty obvious glaring omission. Yes. Another thing is that all visitors have to wear this visitor's bracelet. Hi, my name is Bob. It's this jade bracelet that they give out to everyone who is not a goblin, but is allowed to be there. Okay. And so it has a faint magical aura on it. And a goblin officer can at any time use the phrase, Maglubiet compels you to activate the magic of the bracelet, casting hold person on the person wearing it. Nice. So that is not a commonly known feature of the bracelets. That is what we call trade secrets. <laughs> yes. And they are often given as gifts or signs of favor to mercenaries who serve with the goblin armies. And if you try to use one of these against a goblin or a hobgoblin, the magic automatically fails. Uh, Built-in protection. I like it. Well, Maglubiet isn't going to let you use it against his own people. That's along the short of it. <laughs> yeah. Because it is a divine magic. So yes. Outsiders who break the laws are usually executed out of simplicity because they don't count towards the law of conservation of spirits. But some of them may be saved by what's called the rule of threes, faction, friends, or family, and be ransomed instead. So if you're part of a faction that has some clout, if you have friends or family that have clout or money, they may choose to ransom you instead of just killing you outright. That's going to take a lot to convince them that your value is more than a ransom than a hassle they have to handle with. Because again, killing someone outright, it's simple, it's quick, there's no hassle involved, ransoms can take forever. But again, too, if you have a party member here that's somehow caught doing something stupid, i.e. trying to impersonate an officer, as the Rogar Bard is almost completely inclined to do, this is a way that you don't have to butcher them outright on the table. They can be held for this, and now your party has a secondary 
mission to try to capture, rescue, and retrieve your party member or your MacGuffin, whoever they may be. And it is also important to note that the ransom doesn't typically take the form of gold or silver because coin is not really all that useful on the battlefield. So it's going to take the form of iron, of worked metal, leather, or most likely rations. Yeah, any kind of food with flavor would be, oh my god, important. Also, as we're talking about this worked iron, leather, weapons, things like that, think back last week where we talked about the Duergar, the Dowergar, Duergar, can never say that right. Duergar. Dwergar, there we go. This is exactly what they do. So if you could have visited them first or have some link to them, if you need to produce a ransom, they would be a good place to find said ransom material supplies, costs. I don't know, again, what word we would just, use to tag that. Just don't let the Dwergar know where those weapons are going. Yes. Because the Dwergar would never willingly <laughs> let their weapons go into the hands of the goblins or the orcs. Or if you need a reason to explain another thing, maybe this has already happened and the Dwergar send you out to figure out how they have gathered these items, which again would lead another mystery arc for your players to go and explore as well. Yeah. And then the last little bit on this, the goblins of this realm are known for their finely crafted, if small, composite bows and for breeding the finest riding wolves in the multiverse. Okay. So again, it would make sense they would have a small composite bow because they're small and even smaller because if you think of what the uh, cavalry and horse bows were from like the Huns and the Mongols and things like that, they were generally a smaller recurved composite bow. So it would make sense that these would be even smaller. So if you want your halfling or whatever to have a really kick-ass bow, these guys are making it. Absolutely. Okay. So time to hop across the void to the other cube. And in the other corner <laughs> and in the other corner we have nishrek that's not a bell ringing those are cubes <laughs> yes realm of grumsh one eye so the god of the orcs now going back in third edition a lot of the lore and the way grumsh and the clerics of grumsh work those were some fun characters to play personally i mean the whole one-eyed thing and then i don't know it just there was a lot of flavor i know like one of the aspects fells for the cleric of grumsh was that if they were in the melee you could vomit into your opponent's face to attempt to blind them that was a standard action for a cleric of grumps <laughs> it was like holy crap but there you go yeah that'll work so Grumsh does share his realm with three other orcish deities he controls three sides of this cube the god bogtru controls two sides ilnaval controls one side and then luthic makes her realm on the inside of the cube. She is the more magical, mystical one of them. She does a lot in the lines of alchemical stuff, poisons, a lot of treachery is okay. involved in her domain. She's going to be a little bit closer to Weejas. I don't think that any of these are going to be close to Weejas. I don't think but she's just closer. sort of doing her own thing. <laughs> I don't think Weejas would be caught dead with an orcish deity. Maybe not, but again, Weejas having that whole realm of mystery and magic and death around her. I would assume, you know, dealing with toxins, dealing with potions, dealing with not outright combat, but more subtle combat, I would say. So each side of the cube bears deep trenches around the edges and then across of two more on each face meeting in the center. So kind of like crosshairs almost. Okay. And at the very center of these trenches is what looks like an eye where there's a pyramid built 
that serves as a temple to the god which controls that face. So each of the faces is divided into quadrants by the trenches, and each of the ranks of orcs that have distinguished themselves enough to get out of the trenches are divided up into these four quadrants. There's archers, shaman, spearmen, and siege engineers. That's the four classes of orc society here. So you're divided by basically your battle type. And each one of the faces is controlled by one of the six major orcish clans. And only orcs and their allies, so the ogres, orogs, which are half orcs that are the other half ogre, and the occasional Yugoloth advisor are welcome in Nishrek. So they are very hostile, very xenophobic towards outsiders. It sounds very orcish, really. I mean, and again, this kicks back to older D&D lore, where the orcs were far more insular. I know the Multiverse of Madness is coming out here fairly soon. I don't think it's come out quite yet as a recording of this. And they are working, making the races a bit more malleable and all-encompassing, which I think is a good stretch. But this xenophobia, especially on a plane with so much conflict as is here in Archeon, does make a fair amount of sense. And one of the important things to note about Nishrek, about this realm, is that all magic cast against orcs is diminished because of proximity to their pantheon. So Orcs automatically succeed on all saving throws against spells cast against them. Spells that deal damage only deal minimum damage. Snazzy. And spells with variable durations last the shortest possible amount of time. Okay. Now, a DM question for you. If you were running this with the rules as presented now, would this include beneficial magics as well? I would say if the beneficial magic is coming from a deity that is not one of the orcish pantheon, yes. Okay, no, fair um, rule. Unless, you know, you were specifically bound by some sort of ritual to be denoted as an ally of the orcs. Okay. You would have to undergo a certain ritual for your beneficial magic to have that full potential. Okay, because I mean, maybe the party is a party of orcs and they find themselves in Archeron on this cube. And I could see where your cleric was obviously trying to cast like Bless or True Shot or something like that. And yeah, if you've got a cleric of Grumsh, then sure, that should work, I would imagine. But if you had a mage or a sorcerer that's probably trying to cast a beneficial spell or maybe mage armor or something along those lines, would that hold? Yeah, I would say that if it was clear that you were an ally of the orcs, and not just an ally in coin, as in, you know, a true ally to the orcs, that it would probably work. Okay. But I would say that you would probably have to have some sort of ritual go on to sort of almost make you honorary clan members in order to get across that threshold to firmly establish yourself as an ally. And then in doing so, you have your magic hold properly. I could see that. But what you're describing this kind of reminds me in Skyrim, where you have to ask the orcs to make you, quote, bloodkin. I could see a DM requiring some ritual or some aspect of that for the party member that wanted to cast even a beneficial magic otherwise rules as discussed all right that pretty much takes care of the bulk of what we got going on here in nishrek which is the bulk between this and clangor these cubes are going to be the vast majority this is probably going to have 75 to 80 percent of your individual petitioners within acheron right. as an entire plane is on these two cubes. 
Now, also, because we discussed, you do have smaller cubes as these cubes collide and splinter off. Sometimes you have groups that kind of get sheared off from your main group or main cube, as it were. As a DM, storytelling-wise or whatever, I would make these as similar to your main cubes being Klinger and Again, terrible names. Mishrek. Being as close to those as possible and maybe just changing one or two aspects, kind of like a fallout vault almost. So maybe you have a splinter cube of Nashrek, but instead of having all of the type, maybe it's only just siege engineers or it's just archers. But they try to hold the function and the shape of the cube as close to Nishrek or as close to Clanger as they could. That way, depending where your party is, if they're on one of these deviant cubes, you can kind of change it just a little bit and still give that feel of connection and difference at the same time. Now, I wasn't able to find anything that supports this in the lore, but personally, I feel like these two cubes act differently to all of the normal cubes of the plane. That these two are, they would almost be like tidally locked. Okay. That these two planes are bound together in this conflict, primarily because they are both entirely divine realms so they do have gods on them that are controlling them that aren't necessarily bound to the rules of the plane that would make a fair amount of sense yeah so you just have these kind of divinely controlled indestructible cubes that constantly smash into each other um i would say that they have smashed into each other enough times in the past that there are those portals that we were talking about. Oh, that would make a lot of sense. And so every so often you'll have one side that'll launch an assault through one of these portals onto the other cube, fight for a while, take some ground, maybe lose some ground and eventually get pushed back through. Okay. And then the other side attacks from another portal at the same time to try and draw forces off. And, you know, that would make a lot of sense. The other thing I was kind of imagining is if you had kind of like away cubes or like basically the version of a Viking longship, that's just a smaller cube that you could jettison off that would return eventually. Space Um, elevators. Yeah, kind (laughs) of. Like these space elevators that connect these two cubes that you just sort of hop on and shimmy across. And smash across in the middle and do your battle. And Yeah, no, I like both of those options personally. But yeah, honestly, I kind of forgot about the portals to a large degree. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, there we go. Yeah, headcanon. Yay. Head cannons. That would be with a siege engineer group. Yes. Yes, it would. Oh, that'd be amazing. You could have a siege engineer of Grooks with actual head cannons where they shoot back the heads of fallen goblins. And that's kind of like their whole shock thing. Yeah. Like you had, what was it? The Irish and Celtic skirmishers where they tossed the heads dipped in lie at the Romans. It'd be kind of like that, except with orcs. So they obviously have like hand mounted cannon. Yeah. I like it. Okay. Now I've had cannons of head cannon. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next up on the list is Istvarhan, the walking tower. This is the first Hasatorium that we are talking about. Again, the Hasatoria are these giant iron fortresses that have thousands of slaves sort of magically fused into the walls that are the propulsion system that shift these giant fortresses across the plains of Akron on these skids. 
Imagine if you had a building that was kind of metallic. A really good visual of this would be if you've ever played Dante's Inferno on the Xbox 360, where the bodies were actually built into the wall, which was some creepy but beautifully well done art. So you have a building like that, and it's somehow crossed with a bloody snail. So you've got this trail of gunk that's kind of always behind it as the bodies are ground as their lubrication for this thing to move. Yeah, it's not pretty. (laughs) It really isn't. Zero of five stars do not recommend. And don't. That's what the meatloaf's made of. <laughs> it varies from person to person. <laughs> well done. So this particular Hasatorium is commanded by a half-orc named Estrak Longtooth. And he's garnered a bit of a reputation because he has a great deal of fighting prowess from his orcish lineage. But he also has a very keen mind from his human lineage. And so he has a great reputation as both a cunning tactician and a powerful warrior. And he is drawn in a large following. So unlike the orcish tribes, he welcomes anyone of any race to what he calls his walking tower tribe. And he's starting to really make a name for himself in Nishrek and Orcish warriors are starting to leave Nishrek and come to his banner. So they're actually abandoning the Grumsh Maglubiat fight to come and join him. That's a, I mean, to think you are on a divine plane controlled by your deity and you're leaving your deity to fight with this other mortal orc. Half orc. Yeah, half orc even. That is damned impressive. Another thing too, again, there is so much about this plane that really screams Warhammer 40k to me. There is just a lot. And I think this plane really lends itself. If you guys wanted to do any kind of crossover or add some extra flavor to some of your 40k storylines or campaign battles, you really could pull a lot from this plane and the lore from this plane into that game super easily yes and in the second edition books it is clear that he is getting ready to lead or send out a large army soon but there's talk amongst the orcs that they're not entirely certain whether or not he's actually going to send it against Maglubiat. Oh, he's a grand heretic. I love it. He might very well be. Does this mean we get Orcish Inquisitors? Oh, please, next edition. Wizards, (laughs) give me Orcish Inquisitors. Well, there is a class within the Mercy Killers called Inquisitors. Yes, but I want Orcish Inquisitors. Oh my goodness, that would be amazing. I know I ask for a lot, Wizards. I'm adding this to the list. No shame. (laughs) Please make this happen. (laughs) So one of the interesting features of this particular Hassatorium is that it has this central tower to it that functions as an axle. And so whenever it enters combat, they can have the slaves rotate the tower. So the entire thing spins on its base as it drives forward into the middle of the army, just squishing entire ranks of foes as it moves. It truly is the wheel of woe. And because this axle is spinning, the tower knocks away any ladders that anyone tries to put up to try and scale the walls. And it also disorients any flying foes that happen to land because all of a sudden you land 
and the ground is moving transverse to the way that you're facing. I like it. Again, this kind of still reminds me of the Necron ziggurats that they have. There's a name for it. I don't believe it's ziggurat, but again, they have that very step pyramid feel and look to them. It teleports itself into the battlefield and can dish out just incredible amounts of damage into the middle of an opposing army. So this has that feel to it again. A lot of Warhammer feel to this whole situation. I really like this. And of course, now I need to watch Conan again for the Wheel of Woe. And the Riddle of Steel, but mostly the Wheel of Woe. So if you want to get in, they're willing to give safe passage to anyone who can provide provisions for their fortress. So if you have a large stock of food or strong drink, they will let you in regardless of who's chasing you. But gold and silver are just about useless because it's Akron. So only supplies or services are accepted as legal tender for gaining entry or for getting any sort of services within the fortress. So talking about this and talking about ransom reminds me of one of my favorite stories about Alexander the Great. And apparently while Alexander was on campaign, obviously he would go to city and village and city and village. And if they were part of a different army or a different city state, he would just conquer them and take them over. But if they were allied or friendly, as their quote, quote, tax, he would obviously get food provision for his men and horses. He comes up to this one city and they bring him just wagons and wagons of gold when his army was needing food. And to explain the point to the city king or mayor, whoever it was, the city leader, he took his horse and stuffed a bunch of gold down the horse's mouth, choking it out and killing it with gold, saying, we can't eat gold, we need food. You know, it's that kind of thing here. Gold's doing you nothing if you've got food, particularly if you've got food that tastes good. As Ian said, strong drink would definitely go a long way, particularly with orcs and things like that, or high quality weapons. These are your forms of tender. This is what's going to get you what you want. And because this is a hassatorium, the walls are an amalgam of flesh and metal as the slaves are bound into the walls themselves. Because this is a form of necromancy, after all. So thieves, deserters, and spies are all punished by being added to the wall. There you go. Now they get to be useful. There is strong magic involved that basically strips all free will from anyone that gets bound to the wall, so they become immediately obedient. So you're basically turning them into thralls. All in all, we're just another bricks in the wall. Yeah. (laughs) And there's rumor of a way to restore somebody to pull them out of the wall and restore them back to normal. But nobody is entirely sure what that process is. Fair enough. So you better hope that none of your friends do anything stupid and get thrown into the wall. Just go ahead and tie up your rogue for now. It's for his own good. (laughs) It is. It's for your own protection. 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 (laughs) And because of the nature of the walls, there is really no privacy within the walls because all of the walls have eyes and ears, sometimes literally. Well, there you go. (laughs) All right. Next up. We've got the town of Mesk, this whole port town on the cube of Rechtmerk. This is the cube where the river Styx is a permanent fixture, where each of the six sides takes on aspects of which plane it's connected to. This is, quote, quote, the safe place to come in. The safer place. Yes. It's not specified which face the town is on. Personally, I would put it on the one connected to Bator because Bator is the most lawful of the other planes. 
And there are a few other stipulations listed that I would say lend themselves more to this being on the face connected to Baytor. But it is up near one of the corners, so you do have ready access to two other faces fairly easily. Okay. The entire town subsists on fishing in the sticks. That sounds kind of questionable. <laughs> yeah. And it says that sometimes after a lot of prep, the fish are even edible. Well, there you go. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking, you know, you have the river that's right by the factory. So close to where Ian and I both live, there's a city called Kingsport. And there's actually quite a large chemical factory Eastman that's there. And they just happen to be on the main river for the town. And while by all regards, Eastman's actually done a fairly good job keeping that river mostly clean, you still don't want to be pulling a whole lot of fish out of there. <laughs> But it's not anything like the Naugatuck River up in Connecticut that was downstream of all the milliners and such and, you know, caught fire in the 70s. Yes. I believe the same thing happened in Chicago as well. Uh, Cleveland. Cleveland. Yeah, that's right. It was one of the sea cities. (laughs) So, yeah, it kind of gives you an idea. Again, river sticks, the waters themselves have some innate properties that make it questionable for drinking and bathing. So pulling food out of this is, I guess it beats one of those Badberry cubes. Uh, but just barely. <laughs> but the fish aren't primarily caught to be eaten. They're primarily caught for their scales, which are usable as thin metal. Ooh. It didn't specify what kind of metal. I'm assuming iron because of the nature of the plane. But, yeah. But you can imagine what being able to catch a fish and having these little thin scales of iron. There's kind of crazy things that you could do with that. Oh, yeah. I mean, even just some thin metal sheeting, but then you can make, obviously, some scale armor and and items like that or go and plate different things. No, I like that. There's really one rule for the town, and the rule is get along or get the rope. Like I said, there is one punishment for crime. (laughs) Any disagreements within the town are taken to the town's leader. His name is Endal, uh, which... I have to say, it took me saying that name out loud to catch that. <laughs> I was going to say, it. it's a good name. <laughs> it is a good name. And Dahl's going to um, end all disagreements. <laughs> he is. So he rules through magic and coercion, and he makes the final judgment on any dispute that happens within the town. And his judgment usually ends up in one party in the disagreement being executed. So much like Solomon, he is chopping every baby in half. Just because. (laughs) It lends itself well to a lot of self-policing, a lot of internal conflict resolution. I'm not saying that, you know, the walls might be plastered with if you see something, say something. But peace through strength and all of our, yeah, it was peace through strength, strength through unity, unity through faith. (laughs) Yeah, be for vendetta, yeah. It would definitely have that kind of feel. And he is rumored to have learned his magic from the devils of Bator. And there is another even smaller rumor that he is actually a devil in disguise. Oh, okay. And that instead of just deciding and killing people, he is sending individual souls back to Bator. Okay. And again, this would be a good place for him to find mercenaries and recruits for said blood war that strangely enough isn't here. So, again, that does lend itself to make a fair amount of sense, yes. All right, next location. See here, I think we've only got two locations left in here. On this level. Yes, on this level. As is the case with most of these planes, the first layer has all the the things. (laughs) Except the third layer here, because, again, Weejas is on that bottom layer, and she's got some wonkiness going on. She's on the fourth layer. Fourth layer, okay. And she does definitely have some wonkiness of her own going on. Yeah, just a little bit. And our Modron friends. We can't forget them either. I want Modrons. (laughs) (laughs) So... 
the next location is Resounding Thunder. This is the realm of Lei Kung, King of Thunder, and he is one of the gods of the Chinese pantheon, who in the D&D cosmology are referred to as the Celestial Bureaucracy. I was really enjoying him, and I had a fair amount of respect, and just like that, poof, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of them are on the lawful side of the spectrum. But anyway, so the entire realm is this city built upon and within a massive thunderhead that floats between the iron cubes of Avalos. And his mantra is a sharp blade and a clever strategy alone win the battle, but a sharp blade, a clever strategy, and an impressive noise win it and make heads turn. Again, if not for the bureaucracy, I'd be really into this dude. But bureaucracy, <laughs> it sucks. So at the center of the realm is the Firecracker Palace, which is where Lei Kung resides. Now I want Panda. <laughs> so the streets are paved with dark red bricks and these bright green lanterns line the street. So you've got you not know, Ryan that, Reynolds. No. <laughs> no. Even Ryan Reynolds would agree with us on that one. <laughs> I've heard those interviews. The houses are roofed with green or black tiles and these black baked pottery guardian statues flank every doorway and sit atop every set of eaves. So they're kind of like the terracotta guardians you can see in, I was at the Han grave site? Possibly. I forget who the grave site belongs to, but he's got the terracotta army. I'm sure everyone's heard of that. I would almost see this as statues of like foo creatures. Okay. That's what I was getting whenever I was reading that. Okay, that also makes sense. I mean, this place sounds really freaking gorgeous, and I would want pictures of this place. And because this is a plane of law, and because this entire plane is filled with executioners and bounty hunters, I would say that these are actually probably true guardian statues that will come to life and defend the home if somebody tries to break in and steal something or engage in some sort of mischief. Yeah, I was going to say these probably function almost like the gargoyles on the old cathedrals and old Gothic churches were supposed to have. So yeah, I could absolutely see these things coming to life and stepping up as a protective role, which does nothing but lead to the defense of the city anyway, which apparently, again, this is where your defectors and people are running to from all of the other places. They're coming here because they feel they can be safe here. So they obviously can withstand an attacker 12. Yeah. So the firecracker palace in and of itself is this glaring monstrosity of red, blue, and yellow as visually loud as it is audibly loud, because that's just the character that Lei Kung is. Again, I really want to like this dude. He has zero subtlety. <laughs> I really, really want to like this dude. <laughs> and Sitting adjacent to the palace are the Halls of Retribution and the Nine League Prison. This is where we're finding Ian. So Lei Kung sits in judgment of all of those who have transgressed against the celestial bureaucracy. And one entire wall of this Nine League Prison is filled with wanted posters showing bounties for bandits and other criminals. So if I remember correctly, a league is... It's about three a, miles. Yes. So this is a 27-mile-long wall covered in wanted posters. Again, a city of bounty hunters. It works out for them. And I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask, was it nine league, like nine factions or 
nine distances, but I'm guessing distance. Either one would make sense. And so, yeah, a 27 mile prison. And if it's square, that's 27 miles on a side. And no, I am not scoring 27 in my head right now. Again, give me another 15 minutes. I'll come up with it. So there are three major towns within this realm where the petitioners live. The largest town is Nihao. Nihao possesses a gate that connects to Mechanus. It probably connects to the realm of the Celestial Emperor in Mechanus, the Jade Palace. Uh, We talked about that briefly whenever we did our Mechanus episode. Yes, the Jade Palace was in Mechanus. I know the Jade Palace was in Mechanus. Oh, okay. I was saying that that's probably what's on the other side of that gate. Gotcha. Yeah, again, that makes sense. The next town is called Eight Devils Laughing. That's kind of a cool name. And it has a gate that connects to Bator. So it's going to have a gate that spits out somewhere on Avernus. Now with that, I really hope it's got like the, I guess it's more Japanese. I don't know if it's Chinese or not. The devil masks. I'm thinking that's probably more Japanese. I think it is. Which would be unfortunate because to have the walls lined with eight of those masks, particularly if they acted like a guardian spirit as well for the walls, would be kind of badass. (laughs) Yes, it really would. Um, And then the final town is called Blackwater. No connection to the security company. (laughs) Knew that sounded familiar. Yeah. But again, it would fit because i mean mercenaries it would fit actually (laughs) yeah because this is where most of the realm's food is grown it being a divine realm lei kung can just say that yes vegetables will grow here (laughs) yes you guys don't have to eat iron berries you get real food Yes. Which, I mean, I'd defect here just for that. Yeah, I know, right? I would. <laughs> I, I ran away for a carrot. I screw God, I want food. <laughs> but this is where most of his most successful proxies live whenever they're not out chasing after vengeance. So this is where the bounty hunters live whenever they're taking a break from bounty hunting. Okay. Again, life has its own rewards. This being among them, I like it. And so the souls of criminals slain within resounding thunder, primarily through execution, end up becoming petitioners of Lei Kung, who then go forth to bring in more wrongdoers to the Hall of Retribution for Justice. I'm going to say it takes a certain amount of testicular fortitude, one's going to say, (laughs) to be in a divine realm of bounty hunters. And you know what? I want a career of crime. I'm going to be a cat thief. And a no, city no, these, of bounty hunters. These are the people <laughs> from the wanted posters. Because oh, okay. they get captured and brought, brought in. in. Okay. That makes a little more it's sense. To stand trial and then Lei Kung sentences them. They're dragged out and executed. And then their soul gets bound into service to Lei Kung. Okay, that makes a bit more sense. I was going to say, because you're going to be like, you know what? I don't mind a caning or 12. I'm going to go ahead and commit some crime here. Be like, no. (laughs) No, do not do this. That is the opposite of a good thing to do. (laughs) So anyone whose soul is bound to Lei Kung's service cannot be revived by a resurrection or raised dead spell except by Lei Kung's expressed permission. Now, this makes sense. Again, we had another realm. I forget which one it was. I want to say it was Olympus, but I don't remember 100% where if you Probably Hades. No, it wasn't Hades because it was a lawful realm and it was a good realm, I thought. But you specifically had to have the deity's permission to resurrect. It may have been on Mount Celestia. Yeah, Mount Celestia, that's where it was because it was with the dwarven gods. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. But you had to have their specific permission or at least approval to resurrect them in this fashion as well. So that does tie in with lore from other planes. And so Le Kung is typically quick to give permission for resurrection on condition. And that condition is that the soul that is being revived has to go out and apprehend a powerful wrongdoer and bring them back to his halls for judgment. And if you fail to do that, his agents hunt you to the ends of the multiverse because you have just broken a very substantial contract with a god. Okay, level one character, a warlock with Lei Kung as a patron would be freaking amazing. Yeah, I think Lei Kung is a wonderful warlock patron for someone who is playing a vengeance paladin Yes, that's taking a two-level dip into warlock for Hexblade. Yeah, if your pally somehow gets dropped mid-campaign and he comes back and he resurrects with a level of warlock would be a great storyline and a wonderful fit. That would be a, such a fun character to play. Yeah. I was thinking about that too whenever I was going through my notes. So real quick, one last little thing. Magic is augmented within Resounding Thunder. So any spells that deal lightning damage also emanate a boom of rolling thunder within 30 feet. Okay. And anyone caught in the thunder, and personally I would also apply this to spells that deal thunder damage, must succeed on a save or become deafened and stunned. It says that it ruins spell casting, which I would say breaks concentration, and it makes the affected creatures susceptible to possession by vengeful spirits like haunts, ghosts, and poltergeists that are within the realm. In second edition, it was a minus four penalty on the save. In fifth edition, I would just make that disadvantage on the save. Yeah, no, that fits really well. With the ruined spellcasting, I'd say that breaks concentration also would probably uh, interrupt anything that required verbal components. And if you're getting stunned, then also would probably it'd work like a flashbang. So, I mean, you'd be kind of freeze too. So anything with a somatic component would be kind of screwed up as well. Well, if you're stunned, you can't take actions anyway. So. Yeah, so there you go. All right. And that brings us to the last location that we've got within the first layer. But again, most of the fun stuff's on that top layer. It really is the frosting of this cake. Yes. <laughs> and this last location is Vorkahan, the city of fumes. This is the home to the Mercy Killers faction here in Akron. The leader of the Mercy Killers here is an ocelot or a bone devil named Tall Tally. Okay. Apparently he was exiled from Bator for showing mercy. And has never repeated that mistake. Oh, he's vengeful. I love it. He has a preference for lean, some would say starved troops, leaving them to scrounge for their own food. Again, this reminds me of a lot of Spartan stories. I believe it was Plutarch that had the story. and They'd eat a single communal meal a day and anything else they were supposed to find and scavenge. It was to teach them how to forage in enemy fields. And if they were caught stealing, obviously they were severely punished. And there was one story where a young man had apparently captured a fox and he was in formation trying to hide this fox under his cloak without getting caught. Because again, if he got caught bringing in food or stealing food, he was going to be severely punished. And when he dropped dead in formation, they checked him out and they realized that the fox had disemboweled him while he was trying to keep it covered so he could eat it later as the story goes so i could see again with that there is a lot of reflections in spartan tradition and style and lore here in this keeping your soldiers hungry lends to that as well because again that was a common thing because when they're out they're going to break and loot which steals resources from your enemy in order to sate their hunger the city itself is hidden within a pocket realm and is built literally 
on the corner of a cube. Okay, that's kind of cool. So the city itself is built from gleaming metal that has been welded, fused, and bolted together. And the streets are a perfect shining grid of titanium with lead gutters on the shoulders. Lost me with the lead, but otherwise kind of pretty. Definitely got a steampunk feel to it. So the gleam of the city comes from the fumes that clog the streets. So these acid fountains throughout the city that... The clouds of acid sort of, you know, acid etch everything in the city. Yeah, it definitely has a steampunk feel to it. Yeah, so the mercy killers themselves seem to be unaffected, but for everyone else, it functions as a stinking cloud spell. Surprised that's as far as I went with that. That's actually fairly light-handed, especially for like second edition. I was expecting a cloud kill. (laughs) I was honestly expecting a cloud kill on that. And being built on the corner of the cube, gravity shifts whenever you change from one face to another. Just to confuse the hell out of everybody. And so whenever you change faces, you have to succeed on a dex check or float off into the void. Could you imagine playing baseball here with like each base on a different face? And then obviously (laughs) home plate and the pitcher would be like right on. On the point? Yeah. (laughs) That'd be rough. So all attempts to hear in the city are hampered by the fact that every footfall in the city echoes. So it's just this cacophony of echoing footsteps all the time. Yeah, I'm seeing a steampunk Sweeney Todd. Like the London. Yeah. Yeah. And at the center of the city is the Mercy Killer's stronghold called the Hall of Dark Gables. An awesome name. (laughs) Yeah. The entire complex is made of steel and oily black stone and the walls are topped with these adamantine spikes that perpetually burn with this green fire. Yeah, this is kind of a creepy London. I'm on board. (laughs) And then scattered about within the city are what are called the Wells of Vorkahan. They're these deep pits that are aligned with the bones of past criminals where the condemned are dropped in and left to wither and rot. Okay. Again, that was a fairly common execution, particularly in Rome. There was a specific cliff where they would yeet off criminals, as it were. Yep. <laughs> it was called the Yeaton Stone. <laughs> oh my Little God, known we... historical fact. <laughs> we need to make a meeting place called the Yeeting Stone. <laughs> All right. And while it isn't common knowledge within the lore, the Mercy Killers at Vorkahan are working on developing their own newly constructed Hassatorium. That would be kind of creepy, but I could see that, particularly if it had like this fog that stays with it, this acid fog. It would kind of look like Naxxramas, I'd imagine, at some point. Yeah, I could see that. All right, so that hopefully pretty much wraps <laughs> up Avalis, the first layer of Acheron. As we said, there's a ton of stuff there. I'm probably missing a few things. I know I didn't touch on Hextor's Realm from 3rd Edition, mainly because I touched on just about everything that was in the books for what was there last week. Right. There's not a whole lot for Hextor. He was there, but he didn't get a lot of writing. Yeah. So moving on to the second layer. The second layer of Acheron is called Thuldanen. Thuldanen is the scrap heap of the multiverse. All of the cubes on Thuldanen are hollow. They're all still iron, but they're all hollow. And they're not really iron in the way that cubes on the first layer are. It's almost like an iron stone kind of deal. Not quite iron ore. It's clearly iron, but there's something off about it 
to where it's not really all that usable as iron. I would say it's probably a very brittle iron. You have to think at that first layer, you have all these collisions. You have obviously magic. You've got acids and heat and flame. Iron over time will start to break down. And if you've forged iron and properly, it can be extremely brittle, especially if you heat it up real fast and quench it, you're going to get stress fractures through things like that. So, I mean, there's a lot of different things. These are probably going to be pocked, very heavily pitted. Again, a lot of your stuff and debris from the first layer is eventually going to kind of fall and sift its way down. And as it does so, it's going to reach here. And anything that was even partially usable is going to be a resource to be salvaged on that first layer. So this is really where everything kind of gets chucked. Yeah. And going back to your analogy, that actually makes a lot of sense because this is almost like slag or scale. Yeah. Because whenever you're heating metal, especially iron, you will develop an oxide layer on the metal where it's reacting with the oxygen in the air and it'll form a scale to it that has that sort of brittle, dull gray look to it. Right. When you're dealing with lead or tin, it's generally called dross, D-R-O-S-S, and you can look it up. But yeah, you generally, especially if you're casting and you've got your crucible, you're going to take a spoon or a carbon rod and skim that off the top. And it is this really brittle, chunky nastiness that just kind of floats on the surface. Yeah. So the cubes and the craters on their surface are all filled to bursting with all manner of detritus scrap. Some of the examples that they give are burst ships, toppled buildings, and flying machines of every description, along with weapons and devices of war. One of the descriptions that they put in is it's much like some Titan's toy box. Okay, I can see that. I know your daughter has a particular large box of Legos. Yes. That happens to hit the floor on occasion. And I could totally see that being the odds and ends of the upper layer. (laughs) Yeah. And so the big layer effect for Thuldanen is that at the end of each 30 days, an object is on Thuldanen. It has to roll a D100. On a one, it has to make a con save. And if it fails the save, it is transformed into this weird black iron stone stuff. Okay. It is basically petrified. If it was a magic item, it loses all traces of magic. Ouch. It just transforms into this useless lump. Okay. I call it a cup of dirt. <laughs> In second edition, it didn't specify that there was a percent chance for this to happen it just said that it happens so basically every time you hit 30 days everything has to make that save because second edition was more brutal like that second edition was very brutal and then in third edition it was a dc 18 fortitude save to resist and magic items got a bonus on their fort save roll equal to their bonus so if it was a plus three sword it would get a plus three on that fort save okay and so in third edition if an item was petrified the only way to restore it was via a wish spell or a miracle spell which was the wish equivalent for clerics oh my god that is horrible okay here we go this is the issue i have with this this is absolutely evil and i love it remember when we talked about the magic last week every magic spell including a wish spell has a opposite effect that basically appears like an ion stone and goes zipping off into wherever which can be caught and brought back so if you wish to restore something that stone could be caught and taken anywhere to immediately corrupt and destroy anything yeah holy crap i think what would happen is is that whenever the stone popped at the end of its duration, it would automatically corrupt something. 
it would automatically corrupt something, but if you could be right there and you use this wish spell to restore something and then you could catch that and then run it, because at that point, that's a ninth level spell, so you have nine hours, nine to, hours. to do something with this. And maybe you go and run it into an extremely expensive religious artifact, or maybe, you know, you run it into Lei Kung's temple against to the wall of the nine leagues and to free out some jailed spirits or something along those lines just to cause some chaos holy crap you use it on the walking tower yeah so yeah you convert the entire hasatorium into this into some weird useless into this useless dross yeah oh yeah like i said that's scary (laughs) it is it really is and so living creatures are also susceptible to this effect the exceptions would be native creatures to the plane such as the bladelings rust dragons some Yugoloths that were created here on Akron, they are all immune to this effect. Personally, I would also extend that to the Dwergar petitioners. Yeah. But there are reasons to state that they are not covered baseline. I would say you could probably use this as an assassination spell for anything but a deity. Yeah. Well, because gods are divinely morphic. Right. So So anything but a deity, you could walk up and just like, hey, how you doing, buddy? Smack him with that counter wish. And damn. Yeah, it'd be nasty. Oh, okay. (laughs) So there are large numbers of scavengers and salvagers and treasure hunters that will make expeditions down here. And the veterans make sure that their stints only last 29 days so that they never have to worry about making that save. Yeah, again, you don't want to stay too long. And this particular layer is also being picked over by Modrons and Devils and Archons and scavenging parties from the major armies of the first layer. So there are going to be fights here. It's not going to be on the scale that it is in Avalis, but it is going to be every bit as brutal, possibly even more so because now you're really getting the greed aspect into it. Right. Basically, you're living in Mad Max land. Yeah. So, I mean, you got, you know, whatever weapons or vehicles you can kind of assemble off your broken stuff. You might have one or two really pretty shiny things that, you know, obviously are signs of rank. And as Ian said, you have every possible faction thrown in here that are going to constantly be skirmishing over a resource or two. Yes. So one of the two major locations listed here is Hammergrim. Hammergrim is the realm of Leduger, who is the patron god of the Dwergar. Hammergrim is a realm of staunch isolationists. The Dwergar only speak their own dialect of Dwarven called Dwergen. So if you want to do business with them, you better know how to speak it, or otherwise they're just not going to talk to you. Every town is built to be defensible. So there is no windows at ground level. There's a minimum number of doors and they're kept as small as possible. All the staircases are on the exterior of the buildings and can easily be covered by crossbow fire. Things of that nature. These are a very warlike people and a very defensive warlike people. And if you want to get in without getting dead, (laughs) you better have a lot, a lot of gold because they're only going to deal with you if you have money right this is one of the few places in this realm where gold is going to be your medium of tender because this is where you're getting the weapons and supplies and armor and crafted goods that you're going to exchange pretty much everywhere else but 
only if they don't know you're going to do it. Right. Exactly. Because because they don't want any of these things being given to anyone else here on this plane. Right. So the realm is a constant din of hammers on anvils all day long. But promptly at the bells at nightfall, everything goes silent. And that's because the people who work after nightfall risk drawing the attention of and being taken by Rakshasas. And we don't want that. We do not want that. (laughs) Because then you become a slave in their mansion and that's just bad. Okay. Right. (laughs) slavery is bad okay don't do it (laughs) so there are a number of smaller towns here in hammergrim four that are named these all have wonderful cheerful dwergar names the first one is cold ember this is the heart of forgecraft this is where you go if you want a custom weapon made okay second one is hope glimmer it's the site of the largest temple to ladugar and a lot of the dwergar make pilgrimages here for miracles And there's supposedly a mysterious sunken altar rumored to be beneath the crypts of the temple. So what exactly it's an altar to, I couldn't tell you. Modron of all people. Or Moradin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not Modrons. Yeah. Probably not Moradin either. Moradin and Ladugar are not on good terms. Yeah, I was going to say, that's why it would be the twist. (laughs) You did it, you animals. You blew it all to hell. Oh, wait, that's the wrong movie. Wrong movie. (laughs) Next one is... Death Knell. That's the starting town for the Forsaken and Wow. Yes, it is. <laughs> this is the town on the border of the realm, and it's the first town that most folk encounter whenever they come into Hammergrim. It is the most strongly defended, and they regularly send out patrols to secure the area around the realm. Okay. And then the last one is the one that has got a decent amount for it is called Forge Gloom. Forge Gloom is the location of the Court of Memory, which is where the High Chieftain of the Dwergar here in Acheron resides. The city itself is overrun with spectral undead, and it's got that constant damp, cold, crypt feel to it. And the town itself is only inhabited by the chieftains, advisors, and servants that have to be here to make the government work. The court is sometimes also referred to as the court of the idiot king. (laughs) That's an awesome name. And the reason is because the high chieftain serves as a conduit and is frequently possessed by the spirits of the ancestors and predecessors. And so one day he'll be a priest, and then the next day he'll be a master strategist, and then the day after that he'll be an illusionist. And it just depends on which spirit takes over his body. And having that many personalities just pop in and out of your psyche day after day, it eventually breaks you. So have you ever read any of the later books of Dune? I mean, you have the first... read. I haven't read any of the books of Dune. Okay, first sit down and read Dune. Dune by itself is an amazing book. There comes a point without spoilers for the main story of Dune, but there are certain things that can happen to people at various points. And again, I'm trying to be very vague about this, that the person's ancestors can kind of possess them and interact with them in this way. And this actually becomes a problem for some of the characters. I believe it's the second book, Children of Dune, where this starts to become an issue for some of the characters within the book. So yeah, if you've read the later books of Dune, you can recognize this. If not, interesting story. The first one is an absolute masterpiece. The movie's so far good. Go read Dune. That's my plug for the day. Go do it. (laughs) And it's rumored that this madness 
this conduit ability is the result of a curse by the mad Darrow god, Dirinka, because the Darrow and the Dwergar are very much at odds with each other, just like the Dwergar and the Drow, and the Dwergar and other dwarves, and the Dwergar and the Illithid. And the Dwergar and the Dwergar. And the Dwergar and the Dwergar. When you've been at the bottom for as long as the Dwergar have, everyone becomes your enemy. Yeah, I kind of feel bad for them because they get crapped on by everybody. They really do. And I mean, yeah, they can be kind of dicks, but it's because they get crapped on by everybody. Yeah, I can kind of see their point. So within the city, there is the physical location of the court, which is a massive single chamber with these vaulted ceilings and the very richly carved arches and columns. And at the center of the room is a massive block of something called dark serpentine. I couldn't figure out what exactly it is. Serpentine is a stone. It's generally green and white where the white kind of weaves through it. It's a soft stone, but it is kind of pretty. So if you had a dark serpentine, I could see this with either like a dark, dark green or even a black would actually be kind of I would see like a hunter green, almost black. Oh, that'd be gorgeous. Yeah. And so there's a narrow set of steps carved into one face of it. And the chieftain is the only one allowed to climb the steps. And as he climbs the steps, the spirits of the ancestors swirl around him. And then one of them inhabits his body as he reaches the top. And he makes his pronouncements and his decisions using the knowledge of that particular ancestor and then whenever he's done he descends the stairs and the spirits leave him and eventually it just leaves him a drooling shell that is only capable of really eating sleeping and breathing okay and so because this is a location with a lot of connection to memory and there are a lot of spirits here um there are some notable spirits that are mentioned specifically in the book. The first two are Rathgar the Great, who was the founder of the city of Forge Gloom, and Manguer, who is the first high chieftain. So these are going to be spirits that would be taking over the chieftain from time to time to make their pronouncements and to guide the city. The other two are really interesting. One is called Scab, who is the spirit of a barbed devil. Okay. And the other is named 77, who is a rogue pentadrone modron. That's crazy. I love it. It's absolutely madness. That's the name. (laughs) But yeah, as the DM, if I were trying to roleplay this, I would obviously put it on a table and roll the die to see who is in control at that given moment. Definitely a fun character for the DM, though. And then the second location here on Thuldanen are the Mines of Marcellin. Uh, The Mines of Marcellin are the prime treasure trove of Thuldanen. It's filled with artifacts, magic items, riches. The description puts heaps of spacefaring ships, enormous weapons, and steam-driven carriages are scattered everywhere. Unfortunately, most of these items have already been turned into black iron, though someone who is clever enough could reverse engineer off of these items to try and fabricate a duplicate. That would be a hell of an investigation check, but kind of awesome, especially if you're running an artificer. Yeah. Well, the big problem is if you try and sketch it out on paper, the paper (laughs) turns to iron. Well, there is that. And all of the images on it are lost. But see, an artificer would know to etch this into sheet metal. Aha. (laughs) Well, an artificer would just get the keen mind feet and would be able to remember without error everything that he's seen in the last 30 days. This is also true. (laughs) And so he would just come in here for like 25 days and then he would bamf out to his workshop and then 
furiously draw for five full days. Yeah. <laughs> while everything was still in his brain. Well, sure, if you want to get a feat. <laughs> uh, anyway, so the mines are a very well-known site for mining magical items and machinery. No one is entirely certain where the items keep coming from, but fresh items just appear every single day. If your party is looking for a MacGuffin, it's almost certainly going to be here or at least rumored to be here just because again this is where everything went this is pretty much the room of requirement plus <laughs> it is believed that this is the dumping ground for every item that has ever been disintegrated so rather than destroying the item it gets sent like a banishment here oh i love that because you know monsters get disintegrated all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love it. So the surface of the cube is littered with hundreds, maybe thousands of strip mines and mine shafts. The Dwergar once claimed this cube, but have since abandoned it to other prospectors. And they do occasionally send expeditions in to try and find stuff. But they have largely given up their claim on this cube. Again, roll for Mad Max. Yes. Underworld or the Postman also has that whole, you know, post-apocalyptic whatever you could scavenge city type feel to things. But both of those would work as well. So apparently the Tao come here on pilgrimages from the elemental plane of Earth. Interesting. And it is specifically noted that Dwergar and Modrons fight each other in the tunnels over the things that they find. This makes me think of a pissed off Wally. <laughs> Yes. Maybe Johnny Five sitting there rolling around trying to shock a Dwergar. No! <laughs> I know you love Johnny Five. That's why I brought him up. Nice software! <laughs> so the mines themselves are overseen by an ancient rust dragon named Quarosis. An awesome name for a rust dragon. So she hates the Modrons because they sift through the debris that is pulled out of the mines and they leave it in these nice little stacked piles. <laughs> I freaking love Modrons. It's just something about that that just irks her to no end. Holy crap, we have Modrons in real life. We call them Roombas. <laughs> <laughs> and the only thing she hates more than the Modrons are anyone who would steal from the mines. So anyone who would come in and try and jump someone else's claim, they are immediately on her shit list. Okay. And the Mercy Killers have apparently begun successful negotiations with her. And so they are starting to get a little more privilege on staking claims and the items that are found within the claims. And by claims, most of these are digging through the piles of the tailings that are left behind from whatever is digging inside of the cube. No one knows exactly what the mine monsters are, but they have to be massive because some of the blocks that get removed out to the piles are hundreds of feet across. I almost want to say, remember our discussion of the life cycle of the other rust dragons? Maybe this is where they're scavenging before they make their cocoons. Yeah, but they would be eating. They wouldn't be excavating. Granted, but maybe they excavate as they eat and then just kind of like shuffle through and chomp. I kind of want this to be some sort of weird mutant umber hulks. Yeah, I could see those as well. Because they do burrow through stone and all of that. That's my headcanon. That's where okay. that's no. going. That's perfectly reasonable. 
So that's the mines, and that's the whole of Thuldanen. See, that wasn't that bad, was it? Yeah, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> this one's going to take even less time. The third layer of Acheron is called Tintibulus, which I think is a great inspired name, personally. I'm missing the reference, but... Tintinabulation, the chiming noise, that oh, ringing. Gotcha, yes. Yeah, so this is a layer of cubes that are geometric six-sided cubes, the D8, the D10, the D12, the D20, all of those shapes. They're very regular. The platonic solids as they were? Yes, <laughs> like the rest of Acheron, but they're all made from this gray volcanic stone instead of iron. So this is a continuation of the degradation of the material as you continue down. Okay. And when these cubes collide, they fracture along natural fault lines, leaving hexagonal craters of varying dimensions on the surfaces of the cubes. Okay. With the natural fault lines, the first thing I was thinking of is like certain stones have certain cleavage rates, you know, because they'll cleave on a face, particularly depending on the crystal structure of the stone itself. And that's kind of what I was picturing, which would also lend itself to as these things hit, collide, and break, that's why you're still getting these platonic solid shapes because they are cleaving on a plane surface. This layer is almost entirely empty, except for the Hopping Tower. (laughs) So the Hopping Tower is a structure that greatly predates its current inhabitant, but it is home to the mad wizard Lysander the Hopping Mage. Is she hopping mad? Kind of. (laughs) He's an interesting character, too. So the tower is on a cube that is within the center of a field of broken cubes called the Chiming Stones because of the sound that they make whenever they collide. Lysander was originally from Pandemonium, and then he was cursed when he put on the Helm of Opposite Alignment. Well, that just brings up a bunch of fun. (laughs) So he has gone from chaos and a little evil to law and a little evil. And so in his madness, he believes that he can control the flying shards of Ocanthus, which is the next layer down. And apparently he isn't entirely wrong because he has developed two unique spells that basically allow him to do that. Holy crap. (laughs) The first one is called Lysander's Kaleidoscope. It's a third level spell, and it channels the power of the quasi-elemental plane of radiance. Outside of the layer Ocanthus, it makes the target's eyes bug out and get all faceted like insect eyes. Okay. Causing blindness and disadvantage on dexterity checks. The original was a minus four penalty to hit and a minus five to your dexterity score. So the spell is called Acid and LSD. Is what this is. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) But within Ocanthus, because the layer is dark, it allows the target to step between shards, completely avoiding them, which is a big deal whenever you're talking about the blade storms in Ocanthus. Which are kind of frightening. Which are absolutely terrifying. (laughs) In addition to that, they have completely normal vision while on that plane in the dark because they're tapping into the plane of radiance. Okay. So that's the Kaleidoscope. The other one is called Lysander's Bladestorm. It's a 7th level spell, only usable with an Akron, but what it does is it summons 1d6 shards of razor ice from Acanthus. And they have a 1d8 damage on a hit, and they stick around until they hit something, and once they hit it, they melt into a puddle of water. But on a natural 20, they decapitate their target. Holy hell. (laughs) Yes, they are Vorpal Ice Shards. Wow. (laughs) 
yeah, that's what you get for a seventh level spell. I want to be a mad mage. This sounds fun. So the tower itself is made of these ferny moss covered stones that are held together with a magic resistant purple mortar. And the tower does literally bounce from location to location physically it lands and then it goes up in an arc and lands in another location and then it goes up into an arc and lands in another location to bounce along the face of this cube to avoid collisions with the other stones in the area the tower has five doors on its surface spiraling around it as it goes up each one of them is defended by a guardian yugoloth and if you Manage to make your way through the chiming stones without getting smeared to paste. In order to land on the tower, you have to either succeed on a riding skill check for your flying mount if you're on a mount, which I would equate to an animal handling check, or make a dexterity check if you're flying by your own power, by magic or by your own wings. The tower pauses at the top and bottom of each arc between hops, so you have that little window to land... If you can time it right, and if you don't, bad things are going to happen. Because if you fail that check, the tower begins moving again, and you misjudge it, and you smack into the side of it, and it deals 1d6 times 1d6 bludgeoning damage. Wow. Okay. Again, I'm going to preface this. Drugs are bad. That said, this was not written by anyone who was sober. <laughs> not likely the 70s were a time boys and girls they were the 80s were a time too yes a lawless lawless time in a plane of law and then finally if you manage to land on it then you have to make a con save or you get motion sickness fair enough so in second edition it was a 25 percent chance of spell failure a minus four penalty to attack rolls and a minus three to your dexterity score so in fifth edition i would consider that Probably you have to make a concentration check anytime you go to cast a spell. Yeah. You have disadvantage on attack rolls and you have disadvantage on dexterity checks and saving throws. Yeah, that sounds about right. And it's a fairly simple, easy thing to get rid of because you can cure it with any cure spell. So cure wounds, uh, I would make this, you know, a lesser restoration would clear it. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. So again, that was layer three. That was layer three. We're done. Not written by a sober person. No. <laughs> that was the acid trip layer of D&D. Yes. Oh, my God. Ooh, buddy. Sounds fun, but damn. <laughs> that has the potential to be a bad trip. Oh, yeah. Okay. Then let's go ahead and get to the last layer. Ocanthus, which is the fourth layer of Acheron, it doesn't have cubes. It doesn't have blocks like the rest of the plane. And the whole thing is nearly pitch black. The black ice of Ocanthus forms these razor-thin shards. Some of the largest ones, you know, the miles-wide ones, can be miles thick, like a 100-mile square on the surface would be maybe two miles thick, but most of them are less than an inch wide, which is where the Ocanthan blade storms come in. Which again, is pretty much the very definition of a blade, which is something at least twice as long as it is thick. So whenever you're out, you have to be under permanent cover or you run the risk of just being hit by one of these things. And as we noted off of Lysander's spell, if it crits you, you die. You did. 
You did. <laughs> the razor ice doesn't mess around at all. Again, a D20 is a 5% chance. And there are enough of these things that you're probably rolling 20 or more. So you got a fairly good chance that you're going to die without some sort of protection here. Yeah, it's basically a periodic check to see if you are in a location to get hit by one. And then it makes an attack roll. Right. I don't have those numbers up in front of me because for some reason I didn't put those in my notes. We'll leave that to DM discretion. I can say that there are rules in the third edition manual of the planes if you want to check that out. Uh, it's in one of the boxes at the bottom of the page. I want to say page 125-ish? Somewhere in that neighborhood. And one of the main features of the Black Ice of Ocanthus is that it captures and stores memories and also never melts. The whole memory thing is kind of creepy. It makes a great thing for a party to look for. It kind of freaks me out a lot. I don't quite know how to digest that. And one of the things about that is, you know, as the ice slams into other pieces of ice and starts breaking apart and crumbling, eventually it crumbles away to dust, at which point the memory is probably destroyed. Potentially, yeah. No, I could see that. And so that gets you back into that the wheel of time sort of rhyme. Yeah. Memory becomes legend, legend becomes myth, and myth is forgotten by the time it comes around again. I like that, yeah. And again, if you really wanted to throw your party in here, because again, this isn't a fun place, this would be if something was forgotten to find whatever, you know, piece of this black shard that has the memory you're looking for. And maybe one of the denizens of this layer has that as a trophy or a collection piece or knows where that particular thing is floating about so you can gather it and gain access to that memory. That would probably be my story plot hook for here, or at least one of them. You know, I am kind of actually, now that I'm thinking about it, appalled that Vecna does not have a presence here. Yeah. That is a terrible oversight that Vecna has no presence here. Well, I mean, we have Bast in, e- or not Egypt, she's in, in the Beastland. So, I mean, really, there's little rhyme no, or reason. No, she's in Ysgard. Yeah, that's right. Ysgard. So there's very little rhyme or reasons why they put anybody anywhere. Because, I mean, well, there's that. So anything is explainable because there's that. <laughs> and granted, I'm pulling this primarily from second edition books. And Vecna wasn't a god yet in second edition. So that could be why. There is also that. Anyway, moving along, (laughs) moving along in second edition, there is rumored to be a single massive sheet of ice at the very bottom of Acanthus from which all of these ice plates have been sheared. In third edition, they went ahead and codified it as, yes, that is exactly true. And that is where Weejas's realm is, is on that surface. And we're going to get to her in just a little bit. So if someone's having a hard time imagining these things, hop on YouTube and look up what's called stone napping or flint napping. But it's where people take the obsidian and they can make, you know, like the arrowheads or the faux Indian slash native artifacts. But the way that flakes off and then you get these small thin slivers of very sharp material that that constantly flake off as they work this. These ice shards in my mind would probably represent more obsidian shards to me, but that's just a way to kind of grasp and put your hands around it. Yeah, that would probably be a pretty accurate parallel. Just think of an obsidian that's like constantly frozen all the time. So two locations here. First one from second edition is Zoranor, which is the City of Shadows. This is the home of the Bladelings, the race that we talked about last week. The city itself 
is ruled by the priest king Iron Feather, though he leaves most of the governing duties to the military leader named Night Silver. Okay. They are, as a race, generally xenophobic, and they routinely sacrifice any outsider they find within their borders to their unknown dark gods. Unknown because nobody has come out and talked about them. Because if you find out who the dark gods are, you're probably the sacrifice. (laughs) Yeah. The city is surrounded by the blood forest, which is this weird spherical shell of wood that prevents most of the shards of Ocanthus from reaching the city. It's not normal wood it's kind of soft and fleshy and rubbery and it is supported by the scaffolding of the black ice that sort of holds it in place so i'm not entirely sure what it is it doesn't feel like a forest to me kind of creepy could be like a wood as in like a woodland in which case you could just have they have the sound free rooms where they've got pylons that are set at certain intervals to block sound maybe these are so dense and spaced out in such a way that it blocks the ice shards from coming in and a fleshy wood maybe something like a balsa where it's kind of soft and a little spongy kind of i don't know i'm going to go so far as to hypothesize that this is like an elder god that is trapped frozen in the ice because the bladelings worship the blood forest as a minor god, and they call it Hrista the Grey Whisper. Yeah. And they believe that its duty is to protect the bladelings from the razor shards and give birth to new bladelings. Yeah, I mean, the bladelings themselves do have a good eldritch flavor to them anyway. Again, they've got the weird pokey things. They're humanoid-ish, but they still have got... Yeah, no, you can make a good argument for that. I like it. Because this is the refuge that they were able to form for themselves after they were nearly annihilated upon arrival by all the rust dragons and such. And it would make sense that their god is unknown because they could be saying, hey, this is our god, an insert name, and it's something, either one, because it's an outsider, it's incomprehensible to understand, or it's no god that anybody could connect to because it's nobody they heard of, and then they become a sacrifice. (laughs) Okay, I like it. Yeah, that works for me. All right, and then the last thing we're going to cover tonight is the Cabal Macabre, which is the realm of Weejas, the witch goddess of death and magic. The realm is built upon the surface of the boundary ice at the bottom of the plane, and it takes the form of this castle of ice that does give off this glow, and it is the only source of light within the entire layer of this plane. It's nazi. So from within her castle, she tests spellcasters that have been kidnapped from across the plains. What she's testing for, I don't know. Nobody actually survives her tests. Holy crap, it's a GLaDOS. It, yeah, it pretty much is. <laughs> you must really love to test. Oh, look, it's our good friend, Neurotoxin. <laughs> and failure in the test results in death at her hands. So many of her worshippers consider this to be this great honor. She is totally GLaDOS. Yeah, I can see that now. <laughs> but she spends most of her time wandering the black ice, looking for memories of lost magic and memories of death. And the last little bit is whenever she's out wandering, the blade storm is quelled within a quarter mile of her. Which is really sad. The only thing scarier than the blade storm is no blade storm. Yes. (laughs) 
He's <laughs> like, why have the blades stopped? Ah, oh, crap. Roll for new character. <laughs> yep. All right. That brings us finally to the end of Acheron. I really, really enjoyed this plane. Like I said, there is just so, so much here on the surface because, again, plain blank iron, it seems rather bleak, but there is a ton of role play. There's a lot of different wonky things you can do with it. I really like how this lends itself again. If you do something along the lines of Warhammer 40k or Warhammer Fantasy, you really could borrow a lot from this plane to bring into your stories or your campaigns if you were so inclined to. A ton of really cool characters. I'm still of mixed feelings about Lee Kong. I really want to like him. But he's a bureaucracy dude, and so I can't, but I want to, but bureaucracy. <laughs> so again, I'm innately chaotic. It's just how things work. <laughs> yeah. And Akron, as it stands, especially in the second edition books, is a wonderful plot destination. Oh, absolutely. This isn't a place where I would want to actually try and run a campaign, but this is absolutely a place that I would want to send my party to in search of something or someone. Yeah, you could do a solid four or five sessions here and then GTFO where you're going to be safer. Yeah, absolutely a lot of plot hooks to run all over through here. Okay, so that does it for today. Thank you everyone for joining us for this wild and crazy ride. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under commentaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at under common taste. We are on Patreon, patreon.com slash under common taste. That's where we put up all of the write-ups that we do for the things that we come up with during these episodes. Hopefully by the time this comes out, I will have the bladeling write-up up. I'm working on some stuff. Hopefully I'll have that up if it's not up by the time this comes out it should be up by the following monday so if you would like come over to our patreon account patreon.com slash under common taste and consider becoming a patron to help support the show financially we are on twitch twitch.tv slash under common taste which we will be on in two days time on february 11th on friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, interviewing Declan from the Romancing the Dungeon podcast for our Valentine's Day episode, which is going to be about incorporating romance into your TTRPGs. That's right. We're rolling for seduction. (laughs) So come over and join us on Twitch on Friday and enjoy the interview. If you can't watch it on Friday, it will be next week's episode and it will be available as a normal podcast. It'll also be available as a video on demand on our YouTube channel. And we are also on Discord. The link to our Discord is in the notes. If you have homebrew stuff that you want another set of eyes on, if you have a concept that you want some help fleshing out, come join us, throw it up in our homebrew channel, and uh, we'll be happy to talk with you about that. So if you stumbled across us, a friend, you know, introduced you to our podcast um, and you're hearing us for the first time, you can find our podcast wherever you find your podcasts at. As Ian said, we're on Twitch when we do our interviews, and we're now also porting our interviews and our sessions to YouTube as well if you want more of a visual medium. Please give us a rate and review. This helps increase our visibility with the algorithm, and it also lets us know more of what you want to hear about. Thanks once more for joining us today. Stay safe. We'll see you next week with Declan from Romancing the Dungeon. And happy gaming. Thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste. 
You can find links to all of our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willx underscore 73 or on DeviantArt at deviantart.com slash David Sutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.